We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Different fantasy formats and what insights do we take from them to our core areas? That's what we're talking about this week on Stealing Bananas. And in the first two episodes, we didn't talk a ton about DFS. So we're excited to be joined by someone who that's a little bit more of their specialty. I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find me on Twitter at Yards Per Gretsch. With me as always, Sean Siegel, the GOAT. But we are not huge DFS guys, Sean. And so we brought on somebody who is an incredibly smart DFS mind, Drew Dinkmeyer. Fantastic NBA DFS guy, also NFL DFS. Your leverage article last year at Establish the Run was appointment reading for me. Just fantastic in terms of just the the DFS skill side, as opposed to more or less, you know, focusing on the NFL analysis side. There's sort of these two buckets, and we want to get a lot of, of your inf- information and, and pick your brain about that DFS side and, and how you apply some of those things across um, different fantasy formats. So how are you doing, Drew? I'm doing great. Thank you guys for having me on so much. I uh, I certainly defer to you guys a lot in terms of NFL analysis and player analysis and evaluation. Uh, you both are in- incredibly uh, respected minds in the industry, and so I'm super thrilled to be here talking with you guys and bringing what skills I have to the table. Well, Drew, we have a ton of questions for you today, and anytime that I get a chance to interact with you, I'm always excited about this idea that one day you and I will be healthy, we'll be in the same place, and we'll play some tennis. But tennis isn't the topic today. Djokovic is not the topic. We're going to jump right in to some fantasy information here. We are going to look at a lot of DFS, but Drew, the three of us are in a dynasty league together. It was an auction startup. Since we're talking about thinking across formats, just to kind of get us warmed up today, what do you take from dynasty into redraft and specifically with an auction dynasty? Is there anything you take from auction leagues into snake draft formats? Yeah, I think on the dynasty side of things, I'm still kind of getting my feet wet there. I'm I'm basically in year three or four of of starting to play out dynasty leagues, and I you know I, I dove right into the deepest of waters with you guys in leagues and doing auctions right off the bat. Uh, but the thing that I would say that I've learned from the dynasty side of things is really to emphasize talent over role. And I think that's something that Sean and your work for so many years has been so integral into forming my process is really, you know, just give give players the the opportunity over time, and they'll they'll sort of emerge. And I think that's something that 
you think of naturally in Dynasty because you sort of recognize that your roster is going to take years to develop. But I don't think we often put those same characteristics in play in redraft in understanding that at times during the course of a season, it's going to take time for things to develop. And it's really difficult when you prioritize this heavily because in season, you want to hold on to these players that you just want them to get more opportunity and you're kind of waiting for it. I think that's the, the biggest carryover for me from Dynasty to redraft. And then in general, just you know, with football being such a game of attrition and such a challenging sport for for older players just emphasizing youth and, and erring on the side of youth and opportunity and i think in redraft you see a lot of a lot of that where league winning players often have been trending younger and younger it seems like with rookie wide receivers especially making more and more of an impact over the last few years so that's really you know the the two big principles and then you know, Sean, all, all your work with zero running back has, has certainly translated for me to Dynasty. I just, I refuse to draft running backs in Dynasty. It's like my absolute nightmare. It's probably a weak point of mine. Um, I'm still trying to trend my teams in the direction of contention instead of building straight youth. But I just, I would always rather build through wide receivers. That's really, that's really the the position that holds the most value over time, certainly in Dynasty, but also in redraft. And I think especially the last few years with with the running back thirst that we're seeing in the redraft formats there's just such an incredible opportunity to build some of these monster zero running back teams i have the exact same issue with my dynasty rosters where, <laughs> like, you know really good receivers but at some point you you have to have running backs on your team you have to take the, the short-term play at some point got it jumping over to dfs and we're kind of going from this longer view than redraft but now i kind of want to go to a little bit of a the, the even shorter view right like I think DFS and football, one of the really interesting things is that projections are are so important, but I think on the seasonal level, we see the projections may be a little bit overvalued. And we've talked about that in some other episode, uh, other shows earlier, not earlier this off season, because we just started this show a couple of weeks ago, but in the last few weeks, but I'm curious, what, what concepts should we take from DFS that can help us make better redraft decisions? Yeah, I think one of the big things to to take over from from DFS is really the idea of sort of correlating your rosters and being able to identify upside. It's such a commonplace theme in NFL DFS, uh, especially the last few years, in terms of stacking, which means simply you know picking a, a quarterback and a wide receiver or pass catching option generally. Uh, oftentimes, double stacking and using two pass catchers, two wide receivers, or a wide receiver and a tight end, and those different things to generate upside and compete at the highest level uh, for for tournaments up at the at the top of the prize pool. And I think there's a lot of stacking concepts that do transition over to seasonal and redraft that people aren't as comfortable sort of doing. And you don't need to go out of your way to build stacks and redraft, but I think what people mistake for the idea of building fantasy football rosters is that week in and week out, people think of it as like, oh, it's a game where I need to try to score, you know, 110 or 120 points each and every week. And that's not really how things work. Some weeks you're going to score 80 or 90 points. Some weeks you're going to score 140. And the key is maximizing those weeks where you have the upside so you can bury your opponents in head to head. And so building some of that correlation in, I actually think can help maximize your redraft teams as well in terms of maximizing those spike weeks because you're having to get fewer things right in a single decision that you're making. You know, if you take a, a, a situation with like stacking Dak Prescott and you make sure you get Amari Cooper or Michael Gallup or CeeDee Lamb, those types of players, all of a sudden you just need one decision to get to be right for two or three different players to spike on your roster and kind of carry you for that individual head-to-head -head week. And I think just in general, in all of these spaces, the fewer decisions we need to get right to be able to be successful is something that you should be really leaning on and leveraging. 
Drew, what are some things that you've learned from NBA DFS that perhaps would carry over and help us with NFL? It's kind of a, a cool element here where we're talking about thinking across formats in fantasy football, but it wouldn't have to just be football. I mean, you've been thinking across formats in multiple sports. Yeah. And it's, it's funny, this question, I usually get it the other way around, right? I usually get NFL DFS players who are transitioning to NBA DFS and I'm trying to kind of explain conceptually how the games are similar and how the games are different. And a lot of times, you know, NFL DFS is so built on kind of stacking and finding upside in different things. And NBA DFS is such a game of projection where really the range of outcomes on the projections are much tighter than in NFL. And as a result, you have to play conceptually a little bit different. But I actually think some of those lessons that I've learned from playing GPPs in NBA DFS over the years have helped me become a better GPP player in NFL. Because at times in NFL, I think we convince ourselves that basically anyone is a GPP play in NFL because we're so we're so comfortable with the idea that the ranges of outcomes are really, really wide. And so a lot of times we'll leave projection on the table in favor of uh, a situation that we feel it you know has really low ownership attached to it so we'll play the one percent player projected for four points fewer than the four uh, percent projected owned player and those types of things in nba dfs you just feel the impacts of them so strongly because it's really hard to make up projection um, and so oftentimes i think in NBA DFS, it helps hone your ability to identify what really good GPP plays are, which are players that are going to be owned less than they should and still project to have that potential uh, slate winning upside. And in NFL DFS, I think sometimes people get a little bit too far out on the range of outcomes and too far off the radar and thus convince themselves of anyone or any situation being a good GPP play instead of a situation that projects simply less owned than it should be. And that's such a good point. And it's something that I know I've made that mistake. You said we, we kind of, you know, people generally make that mistake. I certainly have and, and did when I was uh, earlier in my DFS career. I, I feel like that's something I've gotten a little bit better at as well. It's just recognizing that you don't have to find the, the guy that is in nobody's lineup. You know, it's easy to be like, there's a lot of variance in football. Anything can happen, but you don't necessarily have to go that far down the barrel, like you're saying. So, yeah, that's a really, really good point. I, I'm curious as well, kind of flipping this question backwards. You said you, you just kind of started more in DFS recently, uh, excuse me, in Dynasty recently. Obviously, you've been doing uh, DFS for a long time. I'm wondering if there's elements from, because this week we've been sort of talking about different formats and how we apply them back to our core areas. Kind of wondering if there's elements that you've picked up from Dynasty or from Redraft or Best Ball that you've then brought back to your core, which is more DFS. Yeah, I think one of the big elements of Dynasty that, is is the thing that I'm really trying to learn right now is the timing aspect of when to kind of push the chips forward and basically understanding when you have an edge that you need to put the, the pedal the foot down on the pedal and really hit the accelerator. And I think in DFS, there's similar aspects as well, which I've learned over the years, which is in certain sports, you might have an edge that you want to play more aggressively. In certain weeks, you might have an edge that you might play more aggressively. And I think we're all sort of trained uh, when you're wagering money on a, on a week in and week out basis to sort of try to dull your emotions and, and mute things as much as possible because the swings are so big. 
um, that you, you want to be able to withstand those uh, mentally. But I think one of the things that's a real strength at this point in the DFS game is being able to identify when you have edges and sort of pushing them. And for some people, that's going to be on a sport by sport basis. For some people, that's going to be on a week by week basis. There might be a player that you really, really like, but the field just seemingly is not on at all. I remember a few years ago, I had um, a really big stance on Golden Tate. I just didn't understand why the field wasn't playing Golden Tate. It was a dome game for Detroit at home. Um, they were out one of the top receiving options, um, either Marvin Jones at the time or something like that. And the field just wasn't playing him because he had been a disappointing player throughout the season. And I kept looking at the math, kept looking at the projections, and everything looked really good to me. And so I played him really, really heavily. He ended up having a really good game. I had a really good week. But that's sort of an understanding of when you need to push your chips in the middle. Some weeks you're not going to have any takes that really differentiate from the field really heavily. And maybe you should be pulling back on your play that week because you're basically kind of playing the rake if, you're, if you don't have anything that really differentiates yourself. And I think Dynasty is really helping me hone that in as I learn and, and try to work my way through my Dynasty rosters on what is the appropriate timing to start pushing the chips in the middle. Drew, we talked a little bit about how to apply DFS to some of these other formats. The format that in 2021, especially sort of to this point as we're really getting ready to transition into redraft heavily, but best ball has gotten to be so big with a lot of quality providers, some really big tournaments. And you do hear a lot now about best ball players wanting to take some DFS elements into best ball, especially in those tournaments. As we look at best ball right now, what elements do you feel like people are playing correctly, taking them from DFS? And are people making some mistakes thinking that some things maybe apply when they don't? Well, the best ball learning curve has been accelerated so quickly. Um, over the last years. And the people out there who have been putting dedicated content in the space um, have really, really accelerated the learning curve. I mean, just seeing the difference in roster construction this year compared to last year and how many, how, how, how deeper you're getting into the wide receiver pool this year than last year in terms of, you know, building out rosters with 10 wide receivers and, and different things like that. And so I think in terms of what what people have really learned and figured out from DFS is I think the correlation side of things. I, I think people are, are being more active in stacking. It's harder to accomplish because it it's dependent on your opponents, where in DFS you choose. You know, you have salary and, and you choose how, how it fits. But in best ball, it's really dependent on who your opponents are going to allow to come back to you and, and how to build those. And so I think building in sort of optionality through the draft, there's almost like similar DFS concepts with late swap in terms of how you build out your teams uh, during the course of the week, where you might build out a team that if you have a similar decision between a player and a one o'clock game and a four o'clock game, you might lean on the four o'clock game to be able to late swap and, and have some optionality on your roster. And I think people are starting to build best ball rosters, the really good players in best ball, I think are starting to build that through the draft by sort of understanding, okay, these are the leverage points where I see there's gonna be value at different quarterbacks through the draft. I'm gonna start building out for their wide receivers early in the draft, and then I'm just gonna wait for the one to fall to me. And that's gonna complete my stack. And if I do this over you know, 100 teams, 50 teams, 150 teams, whatever it is, I'll eventually get you know, the exposures to kind of make sense by just taking the value when, when I have it there. And I think that's a concept the really strong best ball players are figuring out pretty quickly. I think generally best ball players are figuring out stacking and correlation and those different types of things. But I think the real interesting thing between best ball and DFS is really, it's a game, it both are games of, you know, 
maximizing salary cap and in, in allocations. And in best ball, it's positional draft capital in terms of allocations. And I was in a, a best ball draft just the other day where I took Travis Kelsey in the first round and I'm sitting there at 3.7 with George Kittle on the clock. And I'm like, George Kittle is the best pick here, but I absolutely cannot take two tight ends in the first three rounds because that will just crush the ability to, to generate upside in this roster because it's too much capital into one position that I don't that I only have two positions to use in a best case scenario, the tight end and the flex spot. So I think in general, those concepts of understanding how capital is going to be allocated in best ball cases through through draft and positional allocation and in DFS cases through salary, I think those are the two concepts that really overlap well. Yeah, man, so much good stuff in that answer. Um, I, I'm curious how, how you think we should be approaching best ball differently from regular regular leagues and then into tournaments, which obviously we talked a little bit about correlation. Uh, you know, what, what are the key differences for people that are playing both? I think the differences are probably overstated, honestly. I think the differences should be on the margins. Really, I think the foundation of how you're constructing rosters should be exactly the same in tournaments um, and in, in normal league functions. I think generally, you know, most of the league functions are still paying out sort of the top 25%. So you're still looking to, to figure out upside because, you know, 50th percentile performance probably isn't going to get you any money. So you should still be maximizing upside. You should still be looking for opportunities to stack. But I think generally you should be just value hunting more in, in leagues than in tournaments. In tournaments, I think you should be building kind of a roster conceptually um, with an overall strategy that, that it's aiming towards. Whereas in leagues, I think you're you're doing that, you're, you're allocating positions kind of in the same way. But if, you know, if an unstacked Dak Prescott falls to round seven and you and Gallup's gone and Cooper's gone and Lamb's gone, okay, just take Dak in a, in a, in a regular league because you're just kind of taking the value. Um, but in tournaments, I think you really conceptually on the margins, you want to push the edges a little bit more because you know you need such a high-end performance to work. So some of these roster constructions where you have just three running backs, uh, you know, you draft three running backs in the first like seven rounds or whatever, and you let it go. I think that works in a tournament. I think that's probably overly aggressive for you know a regular kind of 12 team league during the course of the season because you're probably a little too fragile um so it's just really kind of on the edges massaging the amount of fragility that you're in employing in your roster and i think in tournaments you really want to push the envelope on being aggressive there and in you know cash games or, or kind of normal 12 12 team leagues you want to pull back a little bit and build in a little bit more depth uh, to, to get your way through the season Hey, Rotoviz Radio listener, this is Curtis Patrick from the Dynasty Command Center podcast, and I've got a special deal for you today. Go to rotoviz.com, click the subscribe button, put the 12 month subscription in your cart, and use promo code RVRADIO2021. That's RVRADIO2021, and you're going to save 10%. Taking advantage of this deal, getting your hands on what's included in the package is the best way to enhance your performance this year. So go to rotoviz.com and subscribe now. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. We're going to be drafting a lot of teams in this FFPC $100,000 tournament. Ben and I will probably do a show on one later in the season. This format features the 13-week regular season and then four one-week tournaments with the overall winner coming from a 12-team final group. Now, you've touched on this answer to an extent, but how should we play this differently than, say, if it was a four-week contest like the FFPC main event, for example, where all the teams are in there together and it's total points over the four weeks? Yeah, so I think there's some really unique things about that FFPC contest uh, on the best ball side that are really, really interesting from a strategy perspective. First and foremost, the fact that it's a four-week playoff. Um, if you talk about like underdogs, uh, best ball mania championship, that's a three-week playoff. And the difference this year is really big because there's bye weeks in week 14. And I think this is one of the things to monitor most in that contest is how much is ADP of those week 14 bye weeks being influenced? Because honestly, in these big roll-up tournaments, you don't get paid that much for just winning your league and advancing. You don't even get paid that much for just winning, you know, the week 14 tournament and advancing. You're really trying to get through to, to week 16, week 17 and advance in those. And that's when you get the, the um, multiples on, on your investment. And so I really think it's important to really position yourself in a way that's focusing on how can I generate the most upside from my roster in those weeks, 14, 15, 16, 17. If it was cumulative, you'd know that you have kind of the gap to be able to make up that the better players can make up. But in this instance, if you don't get out of week 14, you can't get to week 15. So I would really de-emphasize or look for heavy discounts on players with week 14 buys. And it would change the way that I, that I draft in that specific contest compared to almost all the other best ball contests out there. Yeah, that's really interesting. And the, the week 14 teams with buys, just for anyone who's wants it on top of mind, are the Eagles, Dolphins, Patriots, and Colts. Drew, what style of team do you expect will do well in this format? So I think in general, you know, the, the, the first and foremost, any team that, you know, positionally allocates their capital well in terms of their mix of running backs, receivers, tight ends, where they spend their capital during the course of the draft is giving themselves a shot. From there, 
I think it's a team that's going to likely have had really good health throughout the course of the season, right? Because that's really the key to a lot of best ball teams, and that's really out of your control. And then the teams that separate once they get into the playoffs, I think they will have emphasized correlation. And I think a lot of those teams will also be teams that have lower amount of capital invested in running backs generally, just because I think you know the, the war of attrition at the running back position over the course of the year just takes its toll on so many rosters. And so I expect lower capital allocation running back teams with correlation, ideally even tar like targeting correlation late in the season in terms of potential game stacks and different things like that, um, I think those are the teams that are potentially going to come out on top. And so I draft this way when I'm drafting, you know, best ball mania teams on underdog, I'm thinking through, okay, I have, uh, you know, I've started to build out a Cincinnati stack with Burrow, Boyd. Um, now Cincinnati in week 17, they play Kansas city. I want to make sure I have some Kansas city pieces on the other side of that, that if I activate and unlock that Cincinnati stack in a big way, I've got it from some pieces coming back. So maybe I couldn't get Tyreek Hill or Travis Kelsey early, but maybe I can get Demarcus Robinson. Maybe I can get Byron Pringle. Maybe I can get Daryl Williams and just hope those types of things. So I think those types of little correlations that you can build in for the big week, the week that matters the most in a lot of these formats, the prize pools are so top heavy that it's week 17. I think those types of teams are going to have an advantage uh, if they you know, have the good fortune and the health to kind of navigate their way through the playoffs. You mentioned some of those names. Those are interesting names. One of the things about trying to play Cincinnati, which I think is a team that, that Ben and I are on and listeners of OT are on, those Kansas City guys to play back with them are expensive. How do we balance some of those real sort of deep sleeper Kansas City players with this idea you talked about earlier where perhaps owners are trying to be too unique or are going for too deep a sleeper in order to try and have a unique roster for the tournament. Yeah, so I think in, in those cases, really all this stuff should be massaging on the fringes in terms of overinvestment. Like if I'm playing the Cincinnati side and I miss out on Tyreek and, and Kelsey and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire um, and even Hardman, let's say I've missed out on kind of the main group of Kansas City players, I'm not necessarily taking multiple Chiefs flyers. Then my, I'm starting to put too much fragility in terms of my roster on this one situation where I need lots of different injuries to kind of unveil stuff. But I might take one. I might take one of Demarcus Robinson, Pringle, or Daryl Williams, or McKinnon, or someone like that to just sort of give myself that last round flyer that kind of fits it together and says, okay, you know, maybe maybe I get lucky here that I run into this situation. I've run into, I think last year with Justin Herzig's best ball uh, winning team, it was KJ Hamler who had like the, the, the one big breakout game of his season happened to come at the right time in those types of situations. So you want to, you want to, the game of best ball is so fascinating because to me, it's all just managing capital and not over investing in any specific area. And this is an instance where I would say towards the back end of your roster, you don't want to over invest in one specific team becoming really fragile for you because you're you're if it, if everything works perfectly for that team you're nixing two roster spots instead of one i have kind of a broad question to circle back to something that you said earlier you you talked about how the, the really sharp best ball players are sort of setting themselves up for multiple stacks and then taking the value where it exists and so it's sort of a an understanding of what they're trying to do at the end at the at the end of their roster, but little ways that they can get there differently and give themselves some optionality. And you compare that to DFS utilizing late swap. 
and I was just thinking like in redraft, we, we talk a lot, Sean and I, about structural drafting and in ways that we can do similar things. I just kind of want to ask you, especially coming from DFS, um, I, I kind of feel like a lot of people who listen to our content, they just want the players, right? And they don't yeah. spend enough time yeah. on that stuff. Yeah. How much, how important is that? I, like, I want you to sort of emphasize how important you, you believe these things are, the, the structural things, the little ways that we can find edges that aren't player selection. Yeah, so I think the important thing is to understand kind of the evolution of any game. Any game that you're trying to beat um, at different points has easier paths to success. And the further you get along in the game, the more you have to start to leverage game theory to create edges for yourself. So early on in DFS, you know, when Mike Leone and I started providing content in 2013, we focused almost all of our content around player selection because there was huge edges around player selection because not a lot of people were correctly evaluating or valuing players. And that was where the edge was easiest to, to be able to uh, take advantage of and leverage. Over time, people have become much better at projecting player outcomes. There have been many more resources projecting player outcomes and much more of the user field is using those projections to make their decisions. The edge has been erased or mitigated over the course of time. And so you now you need to start to think about, okay, how are the other ways that I can create edge? And that's where you start to get into structural um, decision-making. And so as, as, as we have evolved in the game, we've gotten to a point now where a lot more of the conversation is less about who's going to particularly play well on a given week, but have you built a roster that if those players play well on a given week, you actually cash in on it. And that's really the, the structural aspect of DFS now is does your roster correlate and have enough upside and, and is unique enough in terms of ownership to really, if you get it right, really get paid off appropriately? Because what you're doing, especially in DFS in these contests, or even in seasonal and best ball, in these contests where the prize pools are really, really top heavy, is what you're trying to do is understand that most weeks you're not gonna you're not gonna cash. Most weeks you're not gonna make uh, the correct lineup decisions that get you there. But when you do, you get paid off for it in a way uh, that is asymmetric in terms of the upside. And that's really the way to make money at playing these games. Now that we've gotten further and further along in kind of the evolution of the game. And you talked about, um, you, you mentioned obviously in TFS that things have gotten a lot better, but you also talked about something we're seeing in, in best ball ADP and, and team structures that the, a much larger part of the field is doing these in a lot sharper ways. And I think we're going to, we, we have started to see it in seasonal. Sean and I have talked a little bit about how youth in some of these uncertain wide receiver um, groups is being, you know, targeted more than, than it had in the past. And that's maybe changing the calculus a little bit. So it is interesting as we get sharper and sharper that we have to kind of focus more on those structure, structural elements. Well, we said that it's not all about players, but we'll let you take us out of here maybe by giving us a few players for the people who want to hear that. You had mentioned that running backs and best ball, maybe a little bit less exposure, less exposure in certain areas is key to having that upside. Anytime we tell people that they come back with, they want to know, well, then how do I play it? Who, who are the running backs to grab? Who are some of the running backs that you're playing to make uh, this strategy work for you? Yeah, so I think... Really, it's it's very interesting, the running back position in general. So there's some players that I have a lot of exposure to that are players that are in small running back alloc positional allocation in terms of numbers, uh, but 
their high draft capital allocation. So like early round running backs and then waiting forever. And so I end up with like a lot of exposure on players like James White or Naheem Hines, who I think have a lot of usable weeks that'll kind of navigate my way through. And, you know, in the case of Hines, maybe there's a little bit more upside there that probably not given uh, the depth of running back talent that they have on a team. But then if I get into these zero running back situations, it's very different. And I think, uh, thinking about your running backs in terms of a portfolio and you know i come from a finance background so you know i was taught modern, modern portfolio theory and, and kind of understanding the benefits of diversifying assets um and increasing your returns that way and i think different types of running back archetypes make for a nice kind of portfolio mix so sometimes when i have those anchor backs that i can lean on that i'm hoping i'm going to get a legit running back one season i'll come back with some of the guys that i'm just trying to piece it together and limit my overall capital exposure some of the zero running back teams that i'm going to have more capital exposure i want to get deeper into the upside guys and when i think of upside at the running back position i think of First and foremost, successful offenses. Successful offenses are the ones that are going to generate big opportunities for running backs because most running back points are going to come from touchdowns. And so I'm thinking of offenses that I want to bet on where the running back situation is relatively cheap. And so some of the offenses that I'm interested in betting on this year, I'm interested in betting on the Chargers offense. I'm obviously interested in betting on the Chiefs offense. And you can still get, because there's there's a lack of clarity in the backfield, you can still get these pieces very, very cheap, whether it's Josh Kelly or Justin Jackson or Daryl Williams or Jarrett McKinnon. In the case that the main guy goes down, you might see some spike weeks because these offenses are so good because they can generate such clean, clear opportunities for the running back. I mean, we saw Kalen Balage. He wasn't on anybody's <laughs> favorite, dynasty alone. I mean, he had been lost last year uh, produ producing weeks uh, for for people at the end of the season. Now, nobody had him, so it, it didn't really make a, make a big impact. But those are the types of things that I'm thinking of. And so I know Eric Bimefor has talked about Darrington Evans uh, quite a bit in terms of the Tennessee situation. You want to be betting on offenses that you're confident if they remove the main running back, they will still be able to be successful and generate enough opportunities because then it's just replacement value running back creating fantasy points for you. And those can be had very cheaply on zero running back builds right now. That was absolutely fantastic. Exactly what we were hoping from uh, from you today. All, all three of our guests have been been terrific. Love love having this element with the show. It's, it's just a perfect way to bring these topics full circle. Really appreciate you coming on. Tell us where we should be looking for you and what sort of projects you have coming up that the listeners should be uh, really looking for. Yeah, so if you like the way that I think about DFS and the way that I think about uh, NFL DFS, you can follow all of my work over at EstablishTheRun.com, uh, founded by Evan Silva and Adam Levitan. I manage the NBA DFS product over there, and I'm the head of the NBA product. Uh, we're winding down the NBA season right now. We'll still have a lot of NBA offseason content and those different things. But for the NFL, I do a Saturday morning show with Mike Leone. Um, called Establish the Million, where we talk tournament and, and DFS GPP strategy. And then I have a Friday article uh, each and every week called Leverage, where I really look at kind of the, the general landscape of the NFL DFS uh, field for that week and try to articulate best ways that you can create leverage in your rosters uh, to hopefully ascend in those tournaments. Well, Ben, that was a fantastic way to conclude our look at thinking across formats, applying lessons from other formats to our core areas, Drew really giving us that DFS element to round it out. 
his his answers could not have been better. We really appreciate that. Make sure you follow him on Twitter at Drew Dickmeyer. And that will do it for the show today. Thanks to, for listening to this episode of Ceiling Bananas. I'm Sean Siegel. With me, as always, is Ben Gretsch, whom you can follow at Yards Per Gretsch. We'll have more episodes this week. In order to get them, make sure you subscribe to our feed. Please drop us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. And until we chat with you again, keep drafting.